You're listening to The Critical Thought, where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses. Hi, this is Lady C. Welcome to The Critical Thought. In the upcoming episode, I'm going to be talking to Vivian Vosmediano, and she's going to be talking all about how you can create the life that you want to live. But you got to remember that when you look at her life, you're looking at her chapter 25. And so in this video, we want to unearth chapters 1 through 24, maybe not in the entire video. But Vivian, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for the great intro, Lady C. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm just here to prove that the life outside of the organization can be anything that you dream about. I am a living example and I'm no different than anybody that's watching this right now. It literally takes many steps, but I'm here right now and I wanted to share my story just maybe to inspire people to live the life that they dream of. That is so good because, you know, like we all come from the same background, you know, everybody being Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, our minds are being shaped by this organization. And a lot of times, you know, people come from different households as well. And so at that point, you know, you've got other things going against you, not just the religion. So, Vivian, you want to kind of tell our listening audience, you know, where you're from and where you grew up at. So I was born in Iraq. My family came to America when I was one and a half, and I grew up in a town right outside of Detroit, Michigan. And uh, I became, my mom became a witness when I was six. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness in Michigan, and I got baptized at the Pontiac Silver Dome, and that's where I was a Jehovah's Witness. Oh my goodness, you got baptized at the Pontiac Silver Dome. That's my <laughs> neck of the woods. <laughs> Um, I got baptized at the circuit assembly. So, of course, I didn't do the district, but so, you know, okay, so we we got something in common. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, so what was your life like? You know, were both of your parents Jehovah's Witnesses? Was your how, how did that all transpire in your life? Yeah. So my mom is the only one who became a Jehovah's Witness when I was six. My dad and my two sisters were not witnesses. And since my mom became a Jehovah's Witness, I am a Chaldean woman. So my my dad used to beat my mom because she converted from being Catholic to being a Jehovah's Witness because it was bringing the family shame. And with that being said, he was abusing her to the point where he almost killed her several times. And the elders told her that she was doing such a good job staying in the marriage, holding true to Jehovah's name and withholding his abuse. And that made her feel like I'm doing such a good job and it made her more powerful in the organization. So she turned very much into like a narcissist. Well, the organization already breeds narcissism, narcissist people. So it just kind of boosted her ego in the organization. And that is one of the reasons why she stayed besides the the community that it was giving her. And I grew up in the religion. I got baptized when I was 16 to make my mom happy. She, um, she lived a very hard life, and I felt like she deserved a daughter to kind of follow her, her footsteps. So I got baptized when I was 16. And, yeah, I, I after that, I got married as uh, to, another, to another Jehovah's Witness when I was 24 to lead the mayhem of my house. It was just like a lot of abuse going on, a lot of um, just being very loud, a lot of chaos in my Middle Eastern family. I got married to an all-American family who I felt was really calm. And I went from 
one crazy household dysfunctional to another one. The grass is not always greener on the other side, even though you think it is. And that was my life um, for seven years from the age of 24 to 27 years old until I got baptized until I got until I got disfellowshipped when I was 32. Oh, wow. So you got a lot going on there. You coming from a, um, a background where your father is not, you know, um, well, he's 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 obstinate against your mother of being a witness. He's opposed to the beliefs. Hmm. So here you have a woman who is being abused by her husband and you have a religious organization that is tolerating that. Um, did your mother ever seek help outside of the home um, besides just going to the Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh, oh, no, no, no. I mean, the fact that my dad was abusive was something that, I mean, I feel like a lot of Arabic men are abusive. That was one of the reasons why I didn't want to marry an Arabic man. And it was also something that she never really talked about. And she put on a very happy demeanor. And the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses are known as like happy people. She just was a different person outside of the home than she was in the home. And that was a very um, interesting look for me as well, just to look at her in the different different light and no she she did not ever speak to anybody else about the abuse it was just the jehovah's witnesses became her world and i have a huge family but they kind of extended family but they kind of like fell behind and the jehovah's witnesses kind of took the role of of everything for her yeah you know the other thing about the jehovah's witnesses is um i remember growing up as a kid myself and just listening to all these different issues with women and abuse and how they were encouraged to stay because the Watchtower felt like the spouse that's not in line with their teachings is a potential recruit. Absolutely. So there was definitely attempts to have my dad study. And I think when I was like 14 or 15, my, my parents separated for a bit. And my dad actually did end up going to the meetings. I wouldn't necessarily say that he studied. Maybe he did. I don't even know, to be honest. But he was attempting to get my mom back. I mean, my parents got married. My mom was 14 and my dad was 32 when they got married. And at this point, they had been married for like 30 years. So they were separated, which was a huge deal. And they got back together. My parents should be divorced by this point, definitely. But they got back together. And um, it, it's just definitely, I would say, like you said, it's a huge personal study that you can have it's your partner they're not a witness and a perfect recruit so my mom definitely tried to recruit my dad but it wasn't happening and a lot of other my, of my relatives yeah but you know the other interesting thing about your um your culture that you come from hmm. you come from a culture where women are way younger than their than their husbands Absolutely. so was your parents in an arranged marriage no. Well, according to my mom, my dad met my mom at a wedding and he spoke, spoke to her father and asked for her hand in marriage. But yeah, my, my grandmother was actually 11. My mom's mom was 11 years old when she got married, which is crazy and had nine children. So yeah, it's, it's my culture is just like that back then. Now it's not like that. Now they get married a little bit older and back in my country, but it's definitely they get married very young. Mm hmm. And then there's the submission thing, too. So um, your mother is dealing with the submission of her culture, and she's also dealing with the submission in the Jehovah's Witness um, religion. Exactly. So the fact that the elders, like, praised her so much, 
and she had this huge community of people praising her that of course that makes that makes you feel really special and of course you'd want to stay with people who make you feel like that so i don't i don't blame her for staying in the organization when she was in this culture and coming from a family who you have to be submissive so in a sense she was submissive in the home but not really it really just kind of boosted her ego and made her more of a confident woman which i actually am i'm very proud that she did that because she influenced me and inspired me to be this person even though it kind of was like a negative thing because she became a jehovah's witness but it was also a positive thing Absolutely. And the other thing about the Jehovah's Witnesses is this. They believe that you have to wait on Jehovah and he's going to straighten things out in due time. So they're always looking at the new system and getting through the old system. And then if I die faithful or if I live through Armageddon, then, you know, if my husband is there, he comes with me. And if not, he gets destroyed with all the other people, you know. So now, now let's kind of now let's kind of talk about your relationship with your spouse and how that worked out for you. When did you realize that you had made um, a bad decision in the choice of spouse that you cho- that you chose? So my my husband was actually just really insecure, and he threw all his insecurities on me. He became very controlling, and we just didn't do much. We kind of just stayed at, stayed at home, and that was kind of our life. It was a very monotonous, boring life. Uh, we weren't very active socializing with things. Like we would get invited to certain things and he would tell me to tell them that we were busy, but we were busy being at home because he didn't really want to hang out. And when I was hanging out with girlfriends or he would be like, you need to be home. And when I was talking to guys, every guy I was speaking to, I was flirting with them. So my husband was very controlling and he was a loner and we definitely didn't see eye to eye on certain things. We were married for almost seven years and it got to the point where I would tell him something and he would try to get better. And then it it just didn't work out. The controlling got so bad that there was a situation that just happened to be in front of me and I committed adultery. And I told him a couple months later and he wanted to stay married to me and He told me we needed to speak to the elders. And of course, I did not want to stay married to him. I already had made the decision. I do not want to stay married to you. We spoke to the elders and I, in my heart, thought that being forthright with everything, they weren't going to disfellowship me. Maybe if if most, they were going to publicly reprove me. So I told the elders my story and I said I did not want to stay married to him. And then they disfellowshipped me. And it was it was very devastating. Okay, so now, did they go through a whole bunch of questions, asking you a lot of um, questions, personal questions, and trying to humiliate you? Is that how your judicial case went? No, actually, they they really just tried to focus on why I, I don't want to be married to him. And I just said, we are incompatible, and we've been trying to work this out for years, and I just do not want to be married to you. And I still love you as a person. I mean, at this point, we were, we were together for almost 10 years, and you were a big part of my life, but I am not in love with you anymore. And I just I just need to my own space right now. And the elders said specifically the fact that I was not 
repent, repentant to them meant I stayed in the marriage because my husband wanted to be married to me and I was not the innocent person in the situation. My husband was. So he had the choice whether or not we were going to stay married and he wanted to stay married to me and I did not. So with that being said, I had no choice. So I got disfellowshipped. And with that, I, I, I just, like I said, I, I did not even 1% in my heart think I was going to get this fellowship. Like if anything, I was going to get publicly approved. I was okay with that. So you had to be really devastated. So then after you got this fellowship, how did you pick up the pieces of your life? That was really, really difficult because of this, this fellowship thing came from nowhere and I was not ready to get this fellowship, nor did I want to get this fellowship. I wanted to stay in the religion. I mean, it was my, literally my whole life. I was, pretty much six years old, born in, uh, not born in, but six years old. And I was 32 at this point when I got disfellowshipped. It was my whole life, my community, my mom was in the religion and I was really devastated. I had my own place set up. So I moved into my own place, started going to the meetings as a disfellowship person, but this was the new congregation I was going into. And just like the whole idea of, or the whole process of going to the meetings, not talking to anybody and then leaving right before the meeting ends, it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And then all the people that I spoke to be the week before I got disfellowship, when I got disfellowship, the week before I got disfellowship, my mom came to my, my place and she made me promise her I was going to get, I was going to try to get reinstated as soon as possible. And I said, of course, of course, I'm going to get, get, try to get reinstated as soon as possible. I mean, I was living my whole life to make, to try to win my mom's love and approval, try to make her happy. I was in the organization for her. Of course I was going to make, try to come back to Jehovah. Like that's my whole life. I don't know anything else. They make you feel like the world is this crazy, scary place. And it was, I was super scared. Like how am I even going to have conversations with people outside the organization? Like I didn't, I was, I was so like all over the place as you can imagine. Yeah. And you know what? Let's just go back to your husband too. See, think about this. As one of Jehovah's Witnesses, you're very limited in who you can choose for a marriage partner. Mm -hmm. So you are, you know, in a relationship with this man and you realize, you quickly realize you're not really um, compatible. Mm -hmm. So, of course, now, when you think about how you all met, what was the circumstances behind how you met and why you chose this man? So I was visiting a congregation I met his sister initially and we just hit it off. She was a couple years younger than me. And we ended up going to Cedar Point, which is an amusement park. And we just really hit it off. And I already saw her brother at this point. And I was like, your brother is really cute. And she got really excited. She's like, I will definitely connect you guys. And she connected us and we just kind of hit it off. And I really liked his whole family. He had a really nice family. And I was like, I, I I really liked the whole family dynamic. So it wasn't just him I was marrying. It was the whole family, which for me, I was leaving this very drama, uh, abusive family. And I was coming into this very calm, all-American, warm Jehovah's Witness family, which in my heart back then was something that was like really desirable. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because it's like... Um, when you think about meeting this brother, he met the criteria. Mm -hmm. He was baptized. Right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so at that point, it's like, okay, so right then and there, you knew that he qualified to be your husband. Yeah. Did you find any other qualities about him besides being cute and being a baptized brother? Uh, <laughs> like, like I said, I, I really fell in love with like his whole family of being this calm, all-American family. And they, he was third generation on both sides of his, his parents. So I knew that there was like some solidarity in the organization and he was a very like simple-minded person like I was. So it was just, yeah, calmness, feeling a sense of safety and just family. That's, that's mm -hmm. it. And so while you were so busy falling in love with his family, you didn't realize that you weren't going to have to live with them, but it was exactly. just going to be you and him together. So you didn't take that into consideration. All you knew was um, it seems like, he came from a, you. You vetted him out in in the sense of the way that the way the Jehovah's Witnesses would, and he met all the his fam. Not only him, but his family yeah. met the qualifications. Yeah, I mean, so these are the things that people gotta you know pay attention to as well. Absolutely. I mean, even his mom, even my mom told his mom at some point, like, "Oh, I know Vivian likes you more than she likes me," and my mom was totally fine with that. Like, I just had a connection with his mom, which was pretty special. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses have such a wonderful networking system. And a lot of times we have tunnel vision and mm -hmm. we don't see everything. You know, other people could probably see that you and that that guy wasn't connected. You and your husband wasn't compatible, but you couldn't see that. Right. You right. Know, yep. you, all you knew was I'm running from this situation, thinking I'm getting away from the people over here, running into something even worse. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. So, yeah. But, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that you had to be, you know, separated from your family. Are you still um, disfellowship? Did you ever get reinstated? No, no, no. So I, I tried to get reinstated for two years. I wrote four letters. I moved from Michigan to Chicago and still went to the congregation in Chicago when I moved there. And, yeah, kept on writing the letters and never got reinstated. So you kept on um, sending letters to the congregation that disfellowshipped you? Correct. The congregation of in Chicago that I was attending was sending the letters back to the original congregations that got disfellowshipped in. And the reason why I didn't get re reinstated, according to the elders, if like there was it, that that whole two years is just like a blur. But they made it seem like it, time, enough time hadn't passed, which was very interesting because I know that there were people in my situation that were getting reinstated after six months. And I don't know if they wanted me to feel horrible because I I did that to my ex-husband that I made him really depressed and angry that they wanted me to suffer. I don't even and the elders or the elders in his congregation were making me feel like that. I, I don't know the situation, but it was two years and I was trying to be living the life of a Jehovah's Witness. So I, I wasn't making any new like worldly friends and I couldn't speak to my Jehovah's Witness friends. So I call these two years my years of purgatory. There's this in-between years that I had no idea what I was doing with my life in the organization or whatever. But I, w I was in those two years actually creating a non-Jehovah's Witness life. And I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was already living that life. So it was, yeah. I can Interesting. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Was your father-in-law, was he an elder? He was not at the time I was being disfellowshipped. Now, and what about your husband? Was he a servant? No, he was not. Okay. So when you were in Chicago, at what point did you just say, forget it? 
I'm not going to try this anymore. I'm done trying to be a witness. At what point did you feel that way? So after I spent a year uh, living in Chicago, I actually was kind of done with the, the winter months and I wanted a, a warm place to live. So I made the drive from Chicago to California. And in that two and a half day drive, I had a lot of time to think about why I was trying so hard to be a witness, realizing that I was literally only trying to get reinstated for my mom because life outside the organization was pretty great. And now I get to create this life. So at that moment, when I, when I said, welcome, where it said, welcome to California, I remember I'm like, this is where I start over again. I'm not going to be a witness anymore. But when I actually landed in my place in California, I made sure I knew where the closest kingdom hall was just in case I felt the need to go back. I kept my Jehovah's witness clothing. So I was definitely not completely out of the picture, but in my heart, I just, I knew that I wanted to create this life outside of the organization. I had no idea what that looked like. And that was terrifying to me, but I was so ready. I was so ready to step into this, this world, this role that I feel like I was ready for. Well, let me tell you something right now. You had to be an adventurous because you're moving from Michigan to Chicago and now you're going to the West Coast. All I mean, what, what possessed you to do that? I mean, how did you even get on that kind of a journey? Yeah, so I, I, I've, I feel like I've, I've always had this natural born adventurous side in my heart that I just really want to do different things. But back in 2013, I started a project as a wellness coach. I became a certified wellness coach where I lived with families and helped them create a healthy lifestyle. And just by the end of 2013, I had lived with 24 families all over the U.S. And that was the beginning to my adventures. And I had been to California five times in 2013. And I was like, you know what? I really like the outdoorsiness, the fact that there's just great weather, great beaches. This is my place. I wanted to... I, Packed all of my stuff, and I ended up moving there. Wow. Well, you know, that must have been really interesting with this uh, living with all these families. How did you get involved in that kind of work? What, what got you there? Yeah, so it's very interesting because the same month that my divorce became final, I started building uh, an online presence on Instagram, sharing it was not meant to be, I should say it wasn't intentional. I started sharing healthy recipes along with just bits and pieces of my life. I shared that I was part of a, an organized religion. At that time, I was not ready to say I was a Jehovah's Witness. I talked about my family, my the abuse that I'd been through, just really vulnerable stuff. It was my diary to the world. And then I literally pitched this idea January of 2013. So wait a minute. So you said that you were building a an audience on Instagram. So how how many followers did you have on Instagram? So at one point I had 180,000 followers that just grew organically, but my account got hacked and deleted in 2018. So you had 180,000 followers? Yeah, and when on I started Instagram? Yes. Okay. At one point. What were you saying to people that was attracting them? to your account? Besides the hundreds of healthy recipes I was sharing, I was also talking about finding love. I had met my husband through Instagram in 2014. Um, I was talking about growing up in an organized religion. I was talking about sexual abuse, sexuality, um, relationship with your family, being a, a Middle Eastern woman living in America. I was just sharing like literally like a diary to the world is what I call it. 
And I was just very open in the space where it was the time before vulnerability was even a thing. Like I was being vulnerable without even knowing what vulnerability was. This was again, 2013, 2012. This was before Brene Brown. Uh, yeah. Now, now it's like a popular thing, but this was back, back then and, and people liked it. And I had no idea why my, my audience was growing, but it was, it really was. And I, and I had this connection with my audience that was so special. So the more I shared my life with people, the more, people share their life with me. So I was getting private messages all the time, people sharing their life stories with me on a regular basis. So just by being your true authentic self, you were just, people were just gathering around, just wanting yeah. to hear that. And yeah. so is this where these families came to, to, um, to um, you know, hire your services through that outlet? Yes. And I want to add that that audience came from my desire for connection because in those two years of being disfellowshipped and trying to get back into the organization, I had nobody. So my Instagram became my means of connection to the world. And it also was a space where I didn't have to interact with somebody face to face. So I felt that I wasn't guilty about it, I, but I could just type some stuff in my phone, make little videos, make little pictures. It was perfect. And yes, that's where all the people came from was my Instagram. So I put posts out there and people would email me and that's how I would connect with families. Families. And, and, think, and you know what? I think you you had such a dynamic. Um, you're Middle Eastern. You're talking about love. You're talking about finding your um, soulmate. You're talking about recipes. So, I mean, you know, did you, were you able to um, get a quick snapshot of the type of people that were following you? Did you think that you had other Middle Easterners that were following you as well? I had very diverse uh, people that were following me, anywhere from people in their 20s to people in their 60s. Um, most people were from America. Lots of minorities were following me. So it was really, really cool to see all the different people, different cultures that were following me and the messages I was getting from that. Interesting. I'm just curious, what kind of hashtags were you using? I I wasn't using any at the time. <laughs> I wasn't. Oh, you were using hashtags and you were getting all those people finding you on Instagram? Know, yeah, that was back in the day where it, was, it wasn't that hard for, for you to build an audience and people were sharing my recipes. So okay. it was like people, bigger accounts were sharing my recipes and I was getting like four or 5,000 followers sometimes over the weekend. It wow. Wow. Picking up, picking up. It was a different time and space. Like now okay. you get 4,000 people in like two years. It's like, it's, it's a different, <laughs> different time and space. Right. Social but, media. But, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. It, it was also a more authentic space. Social media back in 2012, 2013, 20, even 2014 and 15, it was a more authentic space. You're not going to see these super edited pictures where people are changing their body figures, adding certain things. It was a raw place. It was people where we're sharing pictures, we're sharing stories, and that was it. People didn't really care about likes, comments, blah, blah, blah. But now it's just like a, it's, it's more fake if you can look yeah, at it like that. I can see that. So I want to know more about how you met your current husband, on Instagram. What was that like? Did you reach out to him or did he reach out to you? What was what was that like? So I met my husband through Instagram. He sent me an email and we met and we just fell in love. And he's such an adventurous person. He's originally from Stockholm, Sweden. He's half Swedish, half Spanish. And he had moved from Sweden and he lived in Barcelona for five years. And when I met him, he was living in Miami. So we both shared this commonality of adventure and we loved helping people. So that those two things were our 
core values, adventure and helping people. And that really, I knew this was my person. Now, my, my, here's my question about your, your husband. So you're on Instagram and you guys met through that connection. And what were you thinking about in terms of you had already been in a, a bad relationship? Mm-hmm. So how did you allow him to win you over? What was the, what was the, you know, like the, oh, the striking moments or points? Yeah, I had so many walls up. You have no idea, Lady C, like so many walls. I, I wanted to kick him out after meeting him. I was like, yeah, we had fun and now you're going to leave. So I had so many walls up and I just remember him saying to me, I just want to love you. Why are you making this so difficult? And I did not even know I had all these walls up. So he made me really think, because I thought it was a mess, just like any anybody who's been disfellowshipped and comes from a crazy family. I'm like... He's going to see my family. He's going to realize I'm crazy. I'm next Jehovah's Witness. I don't even know how to explain this to this individual. So I was a mess. I did not even want him to be part of my life because I didn't feel like I wanted to unload myself to him because that's just that was just too much. When he said those words to me, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like this could be my one shot, one opportunity. So I need to just realize that this could be something really, really special. Yeah. So, you know, what re- what was his reaction to your experience being one of Jehovah's Witnesses? I don't think he really understood what being an ex-Jehovah's Witness was like. I actually just did an interview with him for my channel, but I don't think he he realized the depth of it. And I don't realize how he, I don't think he realized how brainwashed my mom was and how the relationship like was going to be with her. I don't think he realized anything. It was just kind of like, oh, she's just a religious or used to be a religious person, but no, she, he had zero, zero idea. So did you get a chance to talk to him about it? And did you guys, um, did he, how did he help you overcome your situation? I did. And he, he's such an extrovert and he has so many friends. He taught me how to have real friends who love you unconditionally and his family welcomed me day one, unconditional love with welcoming with open arms and just has been just my family. They're, they're absolutely amazing. So he has shown me what living a real human existent life here on this planet Earth and being so supportive and non-judgmental and just allowing me to live the best life that I possibly can be and just being super supportive in that, in that aspect. You talked about your first husband and mm-hmm. how you were really just intrigued by his family. Mm-hmm. So now you're meeting your second husband. When do you see his family? When do you meet them? You know, yeah. because when you think about it, you married into one relationship because of family. Mm-hmm. But what about this, this, your husband now? What about his family? I mean, you already talked about how, how unconditional they are. Yeah. But at what point did you realize that? Uh, I I didn't really, I think I was still working through so much trauma when we first got married that it was just all like honeymoon stage. So we ended up getting married in June. And then I went to his brother's wedding who got married in New York in September, I think August, September, met him and the rest of the family. And then that was the first time I met them. And then I didn't actually spend time with them until about a year later, I ended up going to Sweden for the first time. And it was just fantastic. So that's good. So you got two contrasting situations where, I mean, your your ex-husband's family was probably still nice to you when you got married, but 
you were able to see that you can't marry somebody's family. No, no, no. You have to love the person that you're going to have to live with, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you want to tell us um, a little bit about the kind of work that you and your husband do. I understand that, you know, you and I had talked before that you had a chance to go to um, Nigeria. Yeah. So with, with one of your clients. Yeah. So as I said, I started a project where I lived with families and I continued to be living with families and a family from Nigeria actually sent me a message and there was an opportunity for us to go out there. This was in 2016. We spent 10 days out there and it was, it was quite an experience for sure. And so how do you all get your clients now? How do you get your clients? So right now we actually don't work as, well, I don't work as a wellness coach. My husband is still has that as part of his program. He focuses more on men and mental health. I focus on the ex-Jehovah's Witness community and a little bit of just regular people that are working with trauma. And I work, I call myself a trauma-informed coach, but I, I very much so work very similar to a psychologist or psychiatrist. I've been in this coaching world for 10 years and I've worked with so many different types of people. At this point, I've lived with 52 families and individuals from all over the world. This is me living with people and actually experiencing their life and really getting to know people one-on-one. -on -one. And I've had about 30, 35 people that came and actually lived with us too. So think about it as like um, a personal retreat where we get to know the person from the inside out. We get to make healthy food with them. And we just get to know what obstacles that they've had in their way to not allow them to get to be where they want to be. So I've had a lot of really personal one-on-one -on -one experience with people in these 10 years that I've been working as a coach. And the world has kept on showing me, like, you need to work more in the trauma world because I have had a lot of personal experience. And now I've had uh, certifi certifications along this course, too. I'm actually in a year-long program to get me certified in a new method that I'm learning. But in the meantime, it's only been recent that I've been diving into the extra Jehovah's Witness space. It's very, very personal to me. I feel like it's my mission. It's my life mission to be in the space. So I'm just trying to develop it to be whatever it turns out to be. Yeah. So you so you're not just a person that, hey, I'm an ex-witness and now I'm gonna life coach all these ex-witnesses. No. You've been out there already. You've already been doing this for people that were not Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. But then when you became an ex-witness and you you learned about the community, you wanted to share your expertise with them that you've already been working with other people in. That's, yeah. that's a nice, that's a nice trade-off. Yeah. And, and in all honesty, with no offense to the ex Jehovah's Witness space, but they could be extremely negative and very judgmental people. So I avoided the community for not a very long time, almost a decade at this point. And I just was not ready to step into this work, even though my husband was like, these are your people. I could see you working in this space. I just, yeah, I just didn't feel ready to it for it until, until recently. So what type of rudeness um, were you experiencing? Like, for instance, you mentioned um, we were talking off camera and you were talking about how people were looking at you living in Costa Rica and saying, oh, you know, how did you get here? And you're like, well, this is my chapter 25. You don't know exactly. what the other chapters were. Exactly. Well, you want to explain, you want to talk a little bit about your experience and how people were being rude? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm, yeah, I've, I've shared my life here living in Costa Rica. I've been here for three months now and they're like, Oh, you're, you're living this life. Like you're living such a fake life or this dream life, like get off of your high horse. 
I'm like, you have no idea. I, I literally sold about 98% of my stuff when I moved out of California in 2020. We moved out of LA with just three suitcases and I'm traveling for up to, I'll, I'll probably be here for one year. I'm living out of a backpack. So everything I own now, literally everything I own fits in one suitcase and a small backpack. And right now I'm just traveling with like a carry-on size backpack for a whole year. And yeah, that's that's my life right now. My main priority as I'm living here in Costa Rica is good Wi-Fi because all my work is through Wi-Fi. So it's through Zoom calls and that requires a high-speed internet and a kitchenette. Like I, I don't have much of a kitchen here. I have a very simple life. I focus on my work living here in the jungle, I get to experience Costa Rica and meet wonderful people. And I love doing my work online and in good Wi-Fi. So I even have, I like record a little um, video with my little tripod and my phone and my computer. I'm, I'm a super minimalist person. I don't, I don't, I'm not living this glamorous life here in Costa Rica. I'm just living really focused on my work and enjoying nature here. Awesome. Well, you know what you, you, um, when you mention the word Costa Rica to people, you know, that's a vacation spot. So maybe they didn't understand it like that. Yeah. So I'm actually you know? still trying to get my permanent residency card in Sweden. But while I'm doing that process, I cannot be living in Sweden. It's a very, oh. it's a very messed up situation. But I love Costa Rica so much. We were here last year. So I'm like, why not live here for the whole year and see where this year takes me? I'm actually also planning on doing a retreat here for the extra hopeless witnesses in September. So I'm super excited about that for clients I've worked with already. So yeah, I'm just here eating amazing produce and all the beautiful quality stuff that Costa Rica has to offer, going to the wonderful beaches here and just, like I said, focusing on my work. Wow. So for individuals that are going through it right now, maybe they're being shunned by their family. They don't know what steps to take in terms of I'm sitting on the fence as a PMO or whatever it is, what kind of advice would you give to our listening audience if they're in a very precarious situation to make decisions? Be patient. This is a journey with no end destination. Listen to your gut instincts and keep on moving forward with whatever you're feeling in your gut instincts. The more you listen to the things that you're afraid of, the more fear is gonna have a hold on you. But if you can actually continuously listen to your gut instincts and continuously move one step and one step, one step forward, you're gonna end up living the life that you want to live, the life that you dreamed about living, no matter what that looks like. For me, it was Costa Rica and spending time with my family in Sweden. You might be dreaming about living in New York City. I have no idea what that looks like. You might be dreaming about living a life there, doing who knows what kind of career. I think that this life that you're dreaming about is easily accessible for you. It does take time. It took 10 years for me to develop this life, to create this life that I'm living right now. It was not handed to me. It was not given to me. I was not given a roadmap to follow. I just kept on listening to my gut instincts and it led me here and I'm continuously challenging myself and stepping in in the direction that scares me like stepping into this extra hopeless witness space scares the shit out of me scared of being judged scared of being ridiculed I also get judged because people say oh I don't have a PhD behind my name but I have a lot of experience so people will criticize me for that I am a 42 year old woman with a lot of experience and yeah I'm just constantly here to say that the life that you desire is 
within reach within all of us. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take you continuously challenging yourself and also feeling your emotions, not being afraid of your emotions. Your emotions are constantly showing up to show you the direction that you want to live your life. So listen to your gut. Listen to your heart. Your heart is not treacherous. Your heart is amazing. Listen to your heart. It's going to show you all of the things that you need to do and just go in the direction that you feel like you want to. And it will end up leading you to an amazing, magical life. Well, that is awesome. Now, do you think that if you did not experience what you did as a witness, being, you know, shunned, well, being disfellowshipped and shunned and things like that, do you think that that experience, any other experience would have led you to this journey? No, I I honestly think that what I thought was the worst thing that ever ever happened to me in my life, getting disfellowshipped, was actually the the best thing that happened to me in my life. So in retrospect, I thought it was horrible. Why am I not getting reinstated? But it didn't make sense until all these years later. So in the process, I was going through so much anxiety. I was having anxiety attacks and I was just, why am I not getting reinstated? I'm such a good person. I'm doing all the right things. But in retrospect, like looking back at it now, I'm like, I'm so grateful. Thank you, elders, for not reinstating me. I'm so grateful for all that. And it just, it lights up my life just to know that I'm able to live this life and just help people in a way that is just so personal and and unique to me. But you know what, even though it it led you on this path, never thank people for being nasty to you. Because when you think about other paths you could have taken with a less drastic, um, you know, feeling of being cast out, um, think about the things that could have happened to you um, while you were out there. I mean, because you're one person of many that made it through, as it were. So how many people didn't make it through? So the things that they're doing to people to, you know, give them a hard life and, you know, cast them aside from their families and shunning them, that is not loving. So I wouldn't say thank you for not, you know, you know, helping me out when I needed it, because think of these things you could have probably done with your life if you didn't have that bad influence from their teachings and their beliefs, you know, because trust me, there's a lot of people that didn't make it. You know, no. there's a lot of people that committed a suicide before Absolutely. they even got on the other side. Absolutely. So you were just strong enough to get where you are today and you're able to live to tell it. But I'm sure you probably were at your wits ends a lot of times as well when it came to trying to get you through all I think that the organization makes you feel that life outside of the organization, the religion, the cult, whatever you want to call it, is full of gloom and doom. You're you're a heroin addict, you're a drug addict, you're you're an alcoholic, you're living on the streets, you're just a prostitute, you're living this really crazy immoral life, or you're a Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. I wanted to prove that there are some incredible people out there. And I I wanted to give a big F you to the organization. And I wanted to say that this is the life I'm creating and it's going to be magical and just full of so much positivity. And I wanted to to create create it myself. And I wanted to show, I wanted to be an example. I wanted to give people hope that this life is available for them. So in, in, in like that, that time it took me to create this life this life, like I said, is, is available for everyone, but it does take time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it may not be in the form that you're in where you're sitting here, you know, living with all these families and stuff like that. But it may be in their own way. You know, they may be doing something totally different than you. But the main thing you're trying to tell people is whatever it is that you're aspiring to do, don't let the disfellowshipping or the people ostracizing you because you're choosing a different path from the watchtower to deter you from doing something that you're trying to enjoy as a person. I also want to say big time, do not self-reject. So if you have an idea that you're like, oh, this is such a cool idea. The moment you think it, you need to do it. You need to take the first steps to do that that thing because the other voices that come after that, this is a great idea. Oh, this is stupid. I don't think this is going to work. This is not going to work. What am I thinking? You just need to like let it go because those voices are going to take over your idea and you're just going to be like 20 years later, you still had this idea and it's just going to keep on going. But the Absolutely. moment you act on that instinct, this idea that I want to do this, it's going to grow. The next, then, then the next step is going to happen. Then the next step. And then you're going to keep on stepping into the direction that you're going to go. And that's when you're going to create the life that you want. It takes one step followed by another step, followed by another step. The moment you listen to those fears, you're going to end up backpedaling and you're going to end up maybe back where you are, maybe even further back than you are. Then you're going to end up being back at the kingdom hall. Like who knows? Exactly. Don't go there. Because you know what? I remember growing up, when I was growing up, they always made you feel like if you chose the direction against the watchtower and something bad happened, then that's the reason why. Mm-hmm. But they don't look at it like time. They, they, they preach this time and unforeseen occurrence, you know, all the time. But then when a time and unforeseen occurrence happens because somebody did something against the watchtower, then they'll say, that's the reason why. But I mean, if, if there's a rock falling out the sky and it's heading for your house, it has nothing to do with the fact that you didn't go to the kingdom hall that night or does it? No. <laughs> Is that no. A good example? I don't think that's a good example. I'm just simply saying, what if it was on a non-meeting night? See exactly. what I'm saying? Exactly. So that same rock is going to come down, but it's on a non-meeting night and you're home. So what, how do you, how do you, how do you explain that? Exactly. You know, or or if it's if it's like, well, I won't keep I won't keep double clicking on that. But but it's just really sad. Yeah, that they try to use these fear tactics to make you make decisions based on their direction. Exactly. Exactly. And if, if anything, I think that there is this. I, I jokingly say that Jehovah is more with me now than ever before. But seriously, like I feel like there's this universal higher energy that's with me, that's guiding me, that's like having this motherly affection and just taking me on its wings and saying, you should go here, you should go there. And I'm just continuously listening to it. And, I, and I'm and i so grateful. And yeah, I, I'm just really grateful for where I am right now in my life. And I, I literally thank it to putting myself out there and being yourself is so important because the organization makes you feel like you are never good enough. No matter what you're doing with your life, you're never good enough. And if you continue on this kind of energy of I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, it's just going to ruin you. So if you become good enough for yourself and continuously putting yourself out there, of course, you're going to get rejected by people. People are not going to treat you the way you want to be treated. But I also want to say that in the organization, the relationships that we had were fake. We're fake. I'm, it's, it's plain and simple. They're fake. 
I'm sorry, not everyone is going to be your friend just because you're witnesses. Like, it's not that easy to make friends in the real world. It's hard. So if you're like, I've been trying to make friends for a very long time and I just can't make friends. Guess what? It's hard to make friends. Welcome to the real world. But when you're in the organization, it's like, oh, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, we're best friends. But you know what it is? In the, in the religion, in the Jehovah's Witness religion, you have assigned friends. So, and your friends are your friends based on your locality. Yes. So if you live in Costa Rica where you are and you're a Jehovah's Witness and you decide to move to this particular part of town, then when you go to the Kingdom Hall, those people are your friends based on proximity. Very true. Very true. Now all these people are going to be my friends. Like, that's not how it works. Really. Exactly. That is not how it works. I was so fortunate. I've been living here for in this specific cabin for one and a half months. And I just was making a little video out there. And I just happened to meet an English speaking woman. And we just kind of hit it off. We're just going to go to the beach together. But I've been here for a month and a half. And I finally connected with somebody. It takes a while. It takes a while to meet people that you connect with. And just because I'm going to have a conversation with her doesn't mean we're going to be best friends. It's like you meet people, you meet them for a day. You can have a friendship for a day, a season or a lifetime. The lifetime friends are very rare. But the most important for me is I'm continuously craving deep and meaningful connections. The superficial conversations, I, I love that back in the Kingdom Hall. Like I, I have very little room in my life to talk about the weather, clothing, just really superficial stuff. What, what do you do for a living? Like that is probably about five minutes of my time. After that, I get bored. I really do. I'm like, I really want to talk about solid stuff and what I crave. Yeah. The deep connections. And a lot of people don't want deep connections. So I had a very hard time making quality, quality friends. And I didn't realize until recently that there are people out there that want that quality friendship. Well, you know what? <clears throat> you, made a good in, you made a good point. See, and, and this is going to be a very helpful point for people who are waking up and leaving the religion. Yeah. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses have this comfort zone, and the comfort zone is all about, I've been knowing this family for 30 years. Now, you just made a comment, which was very interesting, and you said, that people come into your life for a reason. Some people come into your life for a day. Some people come into your life for a couple of weeks or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But Jehovah's Witnesses, we're so used to being friends with somebody for decades. Exactly. And we, we, we tend to lose it when we realize that we're going to lose that friendship. When what we're doing is we're not allowing ourselves to grow, to grow into more meaningful relationships with people who are actually mind um, with have a growth mindset. Exactly. Challenge. Because if you're around the same people that's doing the same thing year in and year out, you're not going to change. Absolutely. You're not going to grow. No, there's no way you can move ahead because the watchtowers core teachings have not changed. Yeah. And the core teaching is, you get out there and you go knock on those doors and you preach, preach, preach until the end of the world comes. And, and, and everyone knows that no one has lived to see that. Exactly. You know, and exactly. so you'll never get out of that. You'll always be on a hamster wheel dealing with that. You and know, I also want to add that every single extra homeless witness that I knew after I got this fellowship till now, like my childhood friends and the, the people I knew, 
none of them were willing to grow. They're all like stuck. And I, looking back, I'm like, I, I don't want to be there. Like I spoke to some uh, a friend like that, like a couple of days ago, I'm like, wow, she's miserable. Like I spoke to her for three hours and I, I noticed my energy just draining and draining and draining. So for me, I needed to meet new friends who were, who wanted to grow, who wanted to heal, who were on this new path. I didn't want to be, I, I no longer wanted to be a victim. I no longer wanted to be the, the accumulation of my situation and my circumstances. I wanted mm -hmm. growth mindset. I wanted to be, in a different place. And those people, I'm not saying those people are bad people that are still living in the same town that I grew up in, but I, I was not that person. I, I was not. Now it's okay to live in the same town. It's just how, when you, when you live in the same town, you know, sometimes you got to take a day trip. You Absolutely. know, you got to take a two week vacation Absolutely. and then you go back to that. But while you're in that town, you can also meet other people that you can hang out with and you ain't got to just be with people in that town. So okay. with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the way they are structured, you can't get too far from the, from the local kingdom home. No, no, no. You know, <laughs> exactly. exactly. And one of the things that I also noticed when we were Jehovah's Witnesses, the, 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 the whole thing about it was even when you went on vacation, they expected you to find the local kingdom hall in the vacation town. Absolutely. So that you could get back into the groove even when you were on vacation. Absolutely. 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 <laughs> so it's crazy. You yeah. know, so that's why you got to like, you got to cut that umbilical cord so that you can get away from that mindset and grow. So Vivian, you know, you've lived a very interesting life. You have lived with 52 families. You've been coaching for almost 10 years. What are you doing with your space now? So just as of two months ago, I made this program called Find Your Truth. It's an eight-week program, group-based program to help ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-Jehovah's Witness women find out who they are outside of the organization. It's kind of like group therapy. Uh, it's just me and two or three people together in this safe space of my computer. And we focus on different topics each week. And the, the whole program is about self-discovery. And it's about helping you understand who you are. Just a safe space for you to learn about yourself. And yeah, it's, it's been a very, very beautiful journey that I'm, I've been working with these women in this space. And that you can find through my website at livehappylivehealthy.com. And you can find me on Facebook at Vivian Vasmediano, or you can find me on Instagram at Vivian Voss, or you can find me on YouTube at Vivian Vasmediano again. And yeah, that's, that's how you can find me. Okay. And how was that program working out for you with the um, ex-Jehovah's Witness women? It's extremely interesting because this aspect of being a Jehovah's Witness we think was like a huge part of our life. And yes, it was, but also it goes hand in hand with trauma and childhood trauma. So every single woman that I've been working with has been to therapy related to childhood trauma, but they haven't had somebody understand this big piece of the puzzle being a Jehovah's witness. So having the space of understanding, acceptance, self-discovery, and looking into topics like fear, shame, guilt, and just really being held in a safe space has just really allowed people to feel their emotions, express themselves, feel safe, understood, and just, yeah, it's been really, really healing. And it's only two months that I've been doing this work. 
Excellent. Well, Vivian, I want to thank you so much for being on the program and coming out and sharing your experiences. Is there any final comments that you would like to say to my audience? You can live whatever lifestyle you want. It's all within reach. My whole family has decided to shun me. They actually don't speak to me. I have a husband who has a wonderful family. I have now friends and other people that have become more my family than my blood. And they have been my true supporters. And I've been able to create this life here living in Costa Rica and Sweden and just really focusing on what I feel like is my mission that it's taken me some time to get used to. So be patient with yourself. Life can be as magical and as amazing as you want. You don't need the acceptance from your parents. You don't need the acceptance of Jehovah's Witnesses that the life is just, it's waiting for you. All right. Thank you so much. And this has been Lady C. And I'll see you all on the next episode. Thank you. You're welcome. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.